This morning's sermon text comes from Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray now that you would help us to understand the nature of faith in Romans 8.28 and its ground in verses 29 and 30. I pray that you would help us to understand what it is to be glorified. And I pray that you would help us to understand why it is that Paul said that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I pray that we would have this kind of understanding in order that our hearts might be kindled and our lives might be turned into radical, risk-taking, sacrificial, bold, loving witnesses to the glory of Christ in this city and around the world. So come, Father, and help me to be faithful to the text Grant that those in the room would be given a heart to feel and minds to understand and wills to obey. So grant, Lord, that we not preach in vain here, but that the ripple effect of this moment be 12,000 miles and forever. Grant, I pray that there would be no spot on planet Earth that does not feel the force of the prayers of this moment and the effect of this word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Would you ponder with me the implications, first, of the word for at the beginning of verse 29 in Romans 8? You know that for means because, and so what Paul is doing in verses 29 and 30 is giving um, foundation, support, basis, argument, choose your word. He's arguing, supporting, giving a basis for our faith in the promise of verse 28 that everything will work together for your good. So all the hard things that will come into your life, if you're a believer, if you're called and love God, all the hard things that come into your life, he promises they will work for your good. And then he undertakes to put foundation under that faith in that promise. We all need that. Your life may be pretty easy right now. And you say, well, of course, everything works together for my good. It's cool. Everything's good. That's not going to be the story of your life, I promise you. There will be hard times coming. And this text is written so that you keep on believing it 
so that you can keep on loving him, keep on being radical, keep on being sacrificial, keep on being other-oriented and not consumed with your own little huge problems. That's why he's giving a foundation here. Now, here's the question. If God never lies, and if God spoke the promise in verse 28, why we need arguments? God's God. He said it. Believe it. Scrap the arguments. This is what got me to thinking now. Why? Does the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, argue for something God promises? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Scrap the arguments. What's going on here? Now, before I give you what I think the biblical answer is, you need to see the bigness of this question. What I'm asking right here is really big. It's like, why do we have the kind of Bible we do? Why do we have the kind of redemptive history, thousands years long, recorded that we do? What is the nature of faith? How do you come to faith in this room? If you came in here this morning just because somebody invited you or because you came in off the street and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, what is the process that moves you from being an unbeliever to a believer? Somebody willing to lay down your life for Jesus. Change your whole life for Jesus. Or for believers, how do you maintain faith day in and day out? How do you get strong in faith so that you make it through the hard times? What is the dynamic of faith? Those are two big questions I'm asking here when I say, why does he argue? Why is there a four at the beginning of verse 29? Why not just say God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called? New point. New thing about God. Why an argument? God said it. He's God. He doesn't lie. Believe it. Now, let's try to answer that. Here's my answer. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is a response to the revelation of light. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is a response to the revelation of light. If faith were grounded on nothing more than raw authority, I said it, believe it. If faith were grounded on nothing more than raw Authority, the Bible would not look the way it looks. And redemptive history, thousands of years of it, of God's redeeming work in history, wouldn't look the way it looks. What we would have, perhaps, is a, a book about 30 pages long, not 1,100 pages long. And in the 30 pages, you'd have a list of attributes of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. And you have a list of commands. And over one would be, I said it, believe it. That's the way I am. I told you, now believe it. And over here, do that. I told you, just do it. And that's the Bible. That'd be the Bible. A list of attributes and a list of commands. Now, you know God and you know what you should do. Get out of here and do it. There wouldn't be 1,100 pages 
of stories and acts. You wouldn't have gospels with collections of parables and narratives of the deeds of the Lord Jesus to look at and analyze and walk with Him through. You wouldn't have letters that develop long chains of explanatory arguments. You wouldn't have revelation with its exclusive prophetic visions of the way He's going to act in the future. You wouldn't have the Old Testament with its long story of the history of Israel with its ups and downs and God's mercy and judgment. You wouldn't have any window into the hearts of the Psalms. You wouldn't have collections of Proverbs. You wouldn't have prophetic sermons and visions. What is the point? Of all this lavish, special revelation. The point is, faith is not a leap in the dark. It is a response to the revelation of magnificent light. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to spend a third or a half of the sermon outside the text. Because this to me is so important right now that we get this. I want you to understand where your faith comes from, how your faith is strengthened, how your faith is sustained, and that you're not leaping in the dark when you embrace Romans 8:28, which often looks like darkness in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is an explanation of the origin of faith in response to light. Verse 4 and 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 both describe the spiritual light. I'm talking spiritual light here, not physical light. Verse 4, the God of this world, I believe that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing that they might not see, note that, see, we got to see, the light, there's light, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there is a seeing necessary for salvation. It's not a leap in the dark, it's an awakening from the dark to see. You don't get saved by leaping into the dark. You get saved by emerging out of the dark into light. Lights go on. Lights go on when the gospel is preached. You see what's it called? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. He didn't mean spiritual sight. He meant physical sight. Physically, the cause of God often looks like it's taking a hit. Good Friday, for example, and many hard things in your life. But with the spiritual eyes, you can see right through Good Friday to Easter and beyond. There is a light that goes on for the eyes of the heart. Paul prays in Ephesians 1, right? That the eyes of the heart would be enlightened, that we might know what is the hope of our calling. That's salvation. The new birth is the opening of the dead eyes of the heart to see the in-streaming light of the gospel so that we cannot but respond in faith to God. For we do not preach ourselves. Now you can see why. Why shouldn't I preach myself? Because I would distract you from the light. 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Paul says, I'm not going to preach myself. I'm going to ruin people if I do that. I'm going to put myself in the position of a bondservant. I'm going to lift up Jesus Christ so that people get the light. If I start lifting up me, they get darkness. So that's the point of verse 5. Now back to the restatement of verse 4 differently in verse 6. And these restatements are so illuminating. Verse 6. For God, who said, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, that's the original, let there be light. That's the God who does it in our hearts. So there's an analogy between the original, let there be light, and the spiritual, let there be light. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts. He's done the same kind of thing in our hearts that he did on the first day of creation. Let there be light. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Same reality as verse 4, different words. Notice the parallel is, the parallelism. In verse 4, we must see what? The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 6, we must see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Lay those on top of each other. The glory of Christ who is the image of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, the glory of God is the glory of Christ. The image of God is in the face of Christ, which I take to mean the portrait of his whole being, his character, his ways, his person. So here's the point. There's light all over these verses, not darkness. Salvation is not a leap in the dark or faith. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not... A statement, well, I don't see anything beautiful, I don't see anything true, I don't see anything lovely, I don't see anything compelling, but I'll leap because I don't want to go to hell. That is not salvation. That's willpower. Glory to you, not glory to God. Salvation is when, by the Holy Spirit, the scales begin to fall from your eyes, and as you read, now this is why we have a big Bible. It happens differently for everybody. It might be a psalm for you. It might be the parables of Jesus for you. It might be the Sermon on the Mount for you. It might be the cross and its magnificent portrayal in all four Gospels. It might be some revelatory prophetic word about the end. And suddenly the scales fall from your the eyes and it's glorious. It's beautiful. You can't walk away from it anymore. You must embrace it. It is self-evidently divine and godly. Now, the connection with verse 29 of chapter 8, Romans. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Four. And then what he does in verses 29 to 30 is give us a little. It's big, but it's little compared to God. It's little compared to all things in the universe. Besides God, it's big. A window onto how God saved you. And the reason he gives this window is because your faith in Romans 8.28 will be strengthened by the light that streams into your mind and heart as you think on foreknew me, foreloved me, predestined me to be like him. 
called me. Oh, how I remember the call on my life when he opened me and drew me to himself. Justified me. What a cost. Four years in Romans to get this thing straight we've been. Justification. And he is going to glorify me with such certainty it is stated as a past tense done deal. I mean, you need to meditate on those five links in that chain many, many hours until light streams in and faith responding to light becomes massive so that no matter what happens to you, Romans 8.28 is an unshakable conviction in your life. That's the way faith happens. So I'm going to end the sermon in a little bit with this exhortation. Oh, look to Christ. Oh, look to the way God has loved you and saved you and wrought for you in history so that your faith in the hard times will be strong and unshakable. You are a people of light, not darkness. Love the light. Go to the light. Fix your mind's attention and your heart's affection on the light that streams out of the Bible all over the place. The reason it's a very thick book is because... God is a huge and glorious God with much light to display for your faith. All things are written that your faith would be strong. I have two more questions about this text before next week we move into 31. God willing. Question number two. Why is sanctification not mentioned in the chain? And question number three. Why does he say that the aim of my predestination is not just that I would be conformed to the image of his son, but he adds that that he might be the firstborn among many brethren? Why? Those are my two closing questions. Number one. Why is sanctification not in the chain? Let's review. Chapter 6 of Romans is all about sanctification. It's a big word. It's not a familiar word. It's a religious word, largely a Christian word. Chapter 6, verse 22, gives us a good glimpse into what it is. It says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit or you have your fruit Resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. God frees you from sin decisively by making you his own. He starts bearing fruit in your life. We call it sanctification. Comes from sanctus, holy, becoming holy. The process of becoming holy, set apart for God, different, like Jesus. And it's not mentioned in the chain. There are five links in the chain. Look at them. We're at verse 29 of Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew, link one, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, link two, he called. And those whom he called, link three, he justified. And those whom he justified, link four, he glorified, link five. Five great works of God. Where's sanctification? Now, before I answer, let me say why this is important. Its absence might lead you to say two deadly wrong things. 
one. It's not there because it's not essential to getting to heaven. And the others are. You've got to be foreknown. You've got to be predestined. You've got to be called. You've got to be justified. If you're going to be glorified. And you don't have to be sanctified. It's optional. That would be wrong. Dead wrong. And I use dead advisedly. And the second mistake you might make is to say, it's not the work of God. It's our work. And that's why it's not here, because these are all works of God. God foreknows, God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. We do sanctification. That's our deeds, our holiness, our love. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. So I think it's really important to answer the question, why it's not here? Because its absence could easily lead people to draw one of those dead wrong conclusions. Let me just say a word about why it's dead wrong to say that it's not essential. The verse I read from chapter 6, verse 22, says... You receive your sanctification and the outcome, meaning the outcome of sanctification, eternal life. Eternal life is not given to any but the sanctified. There must be a change of life. No, we will not participate in the easy believism that says make a decision for Jesus and live like the devil the rest of your life and you go to heaven. You won't. And that isn't because you're saved or justified based on your works. It's because works necessarily accompany vital faith. If you do not have a changed life, you have no warrant for believing you trust Jesus. Trusting Jesus is a powerful thing. It changes your values because it is a valuing of Christ. And therefore, a person who goes on living all the same values that an unbeliever has is not a believer. Because belief is the casting of yourself on Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and the embracing of him as your treasure. That's what faith is, the embrace of Christ. The resting in all that he is for you. So, I... Would send you to Hebrews 12:14, Galatians 5:21, 1 Corinthians 6:9 for more texts on the necessity of sanctification. What about its being our work and not God's work? Consider these texts: Philippians 1:6. I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Christ. That's God's work. Sanctification is God's work in and through you. Oh, you work, which takes us. To chapter 2 of Philippians, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Another great four. For God is the one who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Oh, Philippians is an absolutely glorious book. I love Philippians. I'm going to memorize Philippians next, I think, when I'm done working on what I'm working on. Philippians, you get, you move from 1-6 to 2-12, now jump to 3-12 where it says, I stretch forward to lay hold on that for which I have been laid hold on by Christ. Got the picture here? Why did any of you reach for Jesus? One reason, He reached for you. 
And so, yes, I don't, don't take me as an overstatement here when I say sanctification is God's work. I don't mean you do nothing. You do sanctification because God is at work in you, freeing you from those old values and those old priorities and those old desires, giving you a passion for Jesus so that you freely do what you want to do. Love Jesus and display Jesus. Magnify Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit's changed you from the inside out. Or, one more text on that. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Couldn't be clearer, could it? I work, I work, I work. But it is not I who am working. That's the Christian life. That's the mystery and glory and beauty of the Christian life. You look at real solid Christians, they labor to know God. They labor to love people. They labor to witness. They labor to support missions. They do everything they can do with all their might. Paul said, I labor mightily with all the might that he inspires within me. If you had ever seen the Apostle Paul on any given day, he would have been at work. Making tents in the evening, teaching five hours a day in the morning, spending the rest of the day in jail probably. Never ceasing. Why? Because he's trying to earn his way to heaven. He is grabbed for heaven. And God has grabbed him so firmly and changed him so deeply, his hands cannot but work to display and to fulfill the joy that he has in Christ. So, why is it missing from the chain if it's so? Crucial. Answer. It's not missing from the chain. It's not missing. Do you see it? It's here in two places. It's in verse 30 at the end. Because in Paul's mind, glorification includes sanctification. Now, that may take some arguing, some light. <laughs> Glorification. When it says, those who meet justified, that's a, a point in your life. Justified, declared righteous through faith alone. Those whom he justified, he now glorified. We usually take it to mean there comes a point when we will, in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15, be transformed, get a new body, be perfected morally and live like Jesus perfectly forever on into eternity. And that's true. That's wonderfully and gloriously true. But so is this. The moment you were justified and thus received the Holy Spirit, God began to glorify you. It's not an accident that that statement comes from the same context in 2 Corinthians where we were a minute ago. So let's go back. You should be able to find it easier this time. 
Second Corinthians. I started you at chapter four and now I'm going to give you the last two verses, maybe just the last verse of chapter three. It's all one. You know, there aren't any chapter divisions in the original letters. So to stop sometimes gets us goofed up. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. Listen well. If you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be glorified, listen. But we all with unveiled face. So that's the wonderful work of the spirit to lift the veil. He lifted the veil. Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. So this is the light we were talking about earlier. We're now beholding the glory of the Lord in his word, in the gospel. What's the what's the result of beholding him in the gospel? We are being transformed into the same image that should ring bells from chapter eight, verse twenty nine into the same image from glory to glory. And there it is. Justice from the Lord, the spirit. Now, I take that text and I ask Paul, what do you mean there? What, how does that glory relate to the glory in Romans eight thirty? Those whom he justified, he glorified, he made glorious. And here, the moment the veil goes up, Christ is seen as king and Lord and treasure. And you steadfastly behold his glory. Something starts to happen. And here he uses the language not of holiness, but glory. Could have used either one. He could have said from holiness to holiness we go on. But he said from glory to glory we go on. So I... I take it that in Paul's mind, the process of glorification begins at justification. And from one degree of glory to the next, we go on. And then a great booster is given at the resurrection where we get a new glorious body like Jesus. And we are transformed fully into his likeness. So my answer to the first question is, why is sanctification missing? It isn't. It is in the word glorified. And if you're wondering where that other place is that it's evident, well, that leads us to my last question. It's, it's in verse 29, becoming like Jesus. You were predestined to become like Jesus. That's verse 29. That's sanctification. You were predestined to be sanctified. You might say, well, maybe we won't, though. Well, you just don't understand the power of God then, because what God plans, he does. And if that was his plan for all his people, that will happen to all his people. So there are two places where sanctification is found here in the chain. One is in the chain of the link of predestination in verse 29. The other is in the link of glorification in verse 30. Last question. In verse 29, why does he move from my destiny as being like Christ to Christ's preeminence among all his brethren. He says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you might have expected, I might have expected it to stop there. It's my destiny to be like Jesus. I should devote energy and time and Trust 
to bringing my life into conformity to my Maker and my Savior and my Lord and my treasure, my King, my friend. Be like Him. Read the Gospels. Absorb the way He acted. And He doesn't stop there. He, he, he adds, so that, so that. Oh, these connecting words are important. Mm. So that he, in all these changed people, might be the prototokos, the firstborn of many brethren. Why? I think Paul's always covering himself from error. He doesn't always do it well enough to keep people from error, as he said, but he tries. What's the error here that he's covering himself from? The error that he is protecting himself from is a man-centered view of sanctification. I'm the goal of my own predestination. My morality, my beauty, my glory, my holiness. I'm the center of the plan. You're not the center of the plan. There's a so that after you. Christ is the center of the plan. The reason you are being changed into the likeness of Jesus is not because it's about you. It's because it takes a certain kind of people to recognize and magnify the older brother. And that's the goal. In order that he might be the first. I think the answer of why that is added is given in Colossians 1.18. I'll read it to you. I, I went to Colossians 1.18 because of this word that I quoted in Greek a minute ago, firstborn. It's not a common word. It's only used two, three times. And here's one of them. Colossians 1.18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Same word. The firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will be preeminent in everything. Now, that's a little clearer, I think, than the so that of Romans 8, 29. Same word, same Firstborn, we're all coming out of the grave with Jesus. Okay, he rose from the dead. We're going to rise from the dead. Yes, but so that. And now here the word is in the NASV. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. ESV, that he might be preeminent in everything. That's the goal of your life. So let me, let me draw things to a close now with Four test questions for your soul. All right. I asked these to myself. I asked these a week ago when I saw I couldn't get to this part of the sermon last week. I just lingered there and said, OK, I'll do this next week. But I asked myself these questions and I'll use me. I'll use me instead of you. I don't want you to feel put upon here. I want you to be the self tester at this moment if you want to be. And Oh, I pray that you would want to be. 
So here are the test questions to see whether or not you understand and appropriate and feel and will live out the so that of Romans 8.29. You are being made into the likeness of Jesus, Christian. And if you're not a Christian here now, God's grabbing hold of you right now to draw you into that step-by-step process. Yield. Christian, you are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And oh, we fail. Oh, we fail. It's little bit two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back, four steps forward, five steps back. But progress over the whole. Question one. Do you want to be strong? I'm going to pick out four attributes of Jesus that I'd like to have. Piper, do I want to be strong like Christ so that I will be admired as strong? Or so that I can defeat every adversary that would entice me to find joy in any strength but his? Second test question. Do I want to be wise like Christ so that I will be admired as intelligent and wise? Or so that I can discern and admire the all-wise one. Third question. Do I want to be holy like Christ so that I will be admired as a holy man? Or so that I will be free from all unholy inhibitions that keep me from seeing and savoring the holiness of Christ? Last question. Do I want to be loving like Christ so that I'll be admired as a loving, sacrificial, kind, gentle pastor? Or so that I will enjoy extending to others the all-satisfying love of Christ? You're not the center, folks. Sanctification is not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about fitting you to be about Him. That He might be the firstborn, the great one, the strong one, the wise one, the loving one, the holy one, the mighty one, the infinite one, the all-satisfying one. Our sanctification is to bring us to the point where we can see that, savor that, live that for His sake. He's the center, not us. Everything in these verses here, all of God's work, His choosing you, His predestining you, His calling you, His justifying you, His sanctifying you, His completion of that sanctification in glorifying you, all of it has this design to fit you and free you to see and savor And be satisfied in the superiority of Jesus over you. That's what sanctification is for. So I close with the plea that I said I would. Would you please, I say this to all of you now, wherever you are on the spiritual spectrum from unbelief to belief. 
would you please set your mind's attention and your heart's affection on the glory of Christ? Just like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, so that you would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. And thus, in your partially glorified and then fully glorified state, have the spiritual wherewithal to recognize what is truly beautiful, glorious, and satisfying, and give your life utterly and wholly to it, namely Jesus Christ. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you so that you will see the glory that draws you from one degree of glory to the next. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you the peace that comes from believing Romans 8.28 that everything this week, from the hardest to the easiest, will work together for your good so that you will be released from anxiety, self-preoccupation, and can love the people you're going to be with this afternoon and bring them to Jesus. And all the people said, Amen.